0: This is a WTOP original podcast.
1: From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA.
0: I wanna clarify this because sometimes this gets taken out of context.
1: Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, discusses the latest on the COVID-19 pandemic and a key question, voting in person. If done safely, It can be done in person. And he explains why it's a big and growing national security problem.
0: 20 million cases and over 750,000 deaths globally. It's a perfect setup for political, economic, and social instability. Fertile ground for national security problems.
1: That, plus more on how it impacts certain racial groups. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm JJ Green. We've been promising you for several weeks now an interview with Dr. Anthony Fauci about the coronavirus and the impact on US national security, racial groups, voting, his own personal security. So we don't need to build it up anymore. Let's just get to it. Dr. Fauci, it's my view and that of a lot of national security officials and experts that I've spoken to that COVID-19 is a major national security problem and we're in a crisis now. What makes this a national security crisis and problem?
0: Well, whenever you have a degree of disease, spreading, I mean, literally rampantly throughout the world, it creates historically and in reality for the present extraordinary amount of instability. Uh, Because when you do have rampant disease and you have a situation, for example, 20 million cases and over 750,000 deaths globally in the United States, uh, well over five million cases, and now about a hundred, close to 170,000 deaths. When you have that amount of, of, of public health disturbance in the most powerful country in the world, and you have China, which is a, a serious situation that occurred and likely still is occurring in China, Russia right now, even though it's a bit opaque as to exactly what's going on there, there's a considerable amount of disease activity. And then you have the developing world, like in South America, certain countries in South America and sub-Saharan Africa. It's a perfect setup for political, economic, and social instability. So when you have that, that really is kind of the fertile ground for national security problems.
1: We've heard varying numbers of projected casualties before this is under control. Uh, can you share with us the latest on what your, th- your research has told you about, first here in the US and then globally before we get this under control?
0: You know, uh, JJ, it's something that is so difficult to predict because it really, much of it depends on what we ourselves are doing in the sense of the public health measures necessary to contain the outbreak. Now, one of the problems is that, as we've seen, the most effective way to do that is to essentially shut down. The problem with shutting down and staying shut down for a prolonged period of time is that that adds to extraordinary economic instability, which gets back to your first question when you're talking about national security. Of course, economic considerations are, are really totally intertwined with, with security. Now, if we as a, as a global community pull together and try to reopen for those that have essentially shut down in a prudent and careful manner that doesn't allow the resurgences and rebounds of cases, then we could actually do fairly well or at least much better than the projections are now. But if we continue to have uncontrolled infections, it's very difficult to make a projection, but you could do multiple times of what is going on right now. Another factor which will have an important impact in any kinds of projections is the ability to be able to develop and distribute a safe and effective vaccine, as well as safe and effective treatments. And that's gonna be one of the things that's gonna be a major determining factor, not only for us here in the United States, but certainly globally. As you probably know, there are a number of candidate vaccines that are in various levels of testing. Two in the United States and soon three will be an advanced phase three trial to determine safety and efficacy, which if things go the way we hope they will, by the end of this calendar year and into 2021, we should know if we do indeed have a safe and effective vaccine. Several of us, myself included, although we can never guarantee the success of vaccines until you actually prove by a clinical trial its safety and efficacy, we have cautious optimism that we will get to that goal, namely Uh, hopefully at least a moderately uh, effective and certainly a safe vaccine by the end of this year, the beginning of next year, because the early tests that we've done in animals, but particularly in the early phase one trials in human are indicating that the vaccine induces in individuals an immune response, namely it, 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 it induces the body to make a response that you would predict would be protected because it's equivalent to what people who do get infected, the response they make to ultimately clear the virus. So again, all of those factors are in play, interacting with each other, and that will determine what actually happens in the next year or so and how bad this gets or if we can actually turn it around in a dramatic way. It's a combination of public health measures and the application of scientific advances.
1: You've answered a couple of questions that I was going to ask, uh, but I'll just modify them. Um, you said um, by the end of the year, first of the year, we could have a moderately safe uh,
0: vaccine. No, no, um, no. I'm sorry, an absolutely safe, but moderately effective. Moderately effective. Apologies. Moderately <laughs> yeah, no, no. Effective. Because I mean, I don't know what the percent, JG, I don't know what the percent efficacy is. I mean, you'd like a highly effective vaccine. You know, you'd like one that's 90% effective. We may not get to that endpoint, but actually you may not need that. You could do anywhere from a 50 to a 70, 75% effective, because if you get that much protection Mm -hmm. and you vaccinate a substantial proportion of the country and the world, then you will create sort of an umbrella of herd immunity that could really stop the outbreak, even if you don't have a completely, totally effective vaccine.
1: Okay, so let me ask this then, and apologies for the mix-up there. Um, How soon, if late this year, 2021, we're at that point, would or could people start getting the actual vaccine, taking the vaccines?
0: That's a great question, JJ, and theoretically, it could start happening towards the end of this year with limited numbers of doses. And as you get into 2021, you could start talking in tens of millions. And as you get into the mid part of 2021, according to the companies, and there are at least a half a dozen that we are dealing with, they are making advanced purchases developing the capabilities of producing large amounts, and they're talking hundreds of millions of doses, and by the end of that year, a billion doses. So it's not gonna be, everybody's gonna have the availability of a vaccine on the beginning of 2021, but it will incrementally increase, hopefully rapidly, which would obviously add to the question, well, who's gonna get it first? That's an important question. That's the reason why the standard way is to get independent advisory committees. The standard way we do that when there's uh, constraints on total availability is that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States has an advisory committee on immunization practices which makes those kinds of recommendations. This time with COVID-19, that process is going to be complemented by a committee put together by the National Academy of Medicine here in the United States to get essentially synergizing with the standard committees to make recommendations as to who will get it and should get it first. Now, I can't predict what that's gonna be, but past experience tells us that you wanna make sure you protect the first line, frontline responders and healthcare providers who are putting themselves in a harm way to take care of patients who are sick with COVID-19. And then you wanna make sure you protect the vulnerable, those who have a higher chance of getting into serious trouble if they get infected, such as the elderly and those with underlying conditions.
1: Yeah, that's um, precisely where I wanted to go with this next question. You mentioned herd immunity could play a role in getting it under control, and of course, the vaccine process is likely connected to that. And I think I read somewhere recently that um, the way herd immunity works is sometimes the person that gets a vaccine or that develops it and develops immunity to it can prevent other people from getting it around them. Can you explain exactly briefly what herd immunity is?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting concept that has been proven with other infectious diseases. When viruses enter into what you call a naive population, naive meaning immunologically naive, no one has any substantial protection to the virus that's circulating. That means virtually everybody is susceptible because the virus has an absolutely open season They can just go around and infect anybody, and there are no constraints. It doesn't meet any obstacles. As more and more people get infected and ultimately are protected because they've recovered and or as a vaccine is available that induces, artificially, protection, what happens is that the virus doesn't have so much of a free reign so it doesn't easily spread throughout society. And so when you have a certain proportion of the population, and that will always be the case, who are vulnerable because they have not either been infected or vaccinated, and they don't have protective immunity, when you have a substantial proportion of the population that is protected, it kind of boxes out the virus, it doesn't allow it to spread to those vulnerable people who are not protected. So that means that the herd is protecting those who are vulnerable. Kind of like, you know, the metaphor when you see a large herd of animals and there are vulnerable weak ones or ones that are young and unprotected. Yes, When they travel as a herd, the people, not the people, but the other animals that are predators, have a tough time getting to those vulnerables because the herd, which is mostly strong and protective, is not going to allow the virus to spread easily or to have the predator essentially penetrate the herd. That's how they get that word herd immunity. That's precisely why
1: a lot of people now believe so much in everything you say is because of your ability to communicate clear and effective answers to sometimes, sometimes difficult questions. So thank you for doing that. Um, how is COVID-19 likely to impact the flu season this year?
0: Great question, JJ. And there are a lot of unknowns there. The worst scenario which I hope and think won't happen, but it could, and you've got to be prepared for it, that you would have the simultaneous um, uh, uh, occurrence of COVID-19 respiratory illness superimposed upon typical seasonal influenza respiratory illness, which would make the fall and winter season complicated and very, very difficult. What we're hoping for is that now that society understands, and I hope we will continue to do it, although some elements of society are not doing it, if we abide by the principles that we talk about, and there are about five of them, and maybe even an extra one is universal wearing of masks, avoiding crowds, physical social distancing, outdoors always better than indoors where possible, and washing your hands frequently with soap and water, if not with hand sanitizers. If we do that, that would have the effect of continuing to prevent surges of COVID, but also since influenza is spread in much the same way by the respiratory route, we hope that this practice, which we generally have not done during typical seasonal flus, will have the simultaneous effect of greatly dampening the efficiency of flu to spread. So I hope if we do things right, J.J., and abide by those public health principles, we can essentially mute or dampen both flu and COVID-19. If we don't do that, then we could have a really bad scenario this fall and winter.
1: Yeah. We're hoping that that doesn't happen. So um, voting in person, should it be done, considering what is at stake and what's going on with both uh, COVID-19 and, of course, November is right there in the wheelhouse of flu?
0: Well, I want to clarify this because sometimes this gets taken out of context. If done safely, the way we often see when you go into a grocery store or into a Starbucks or into a clinic, you see the X's on the floor that are at least six feet apart. If we can abide by physical separation, avoiding crowd, wearing masks, and having the polling personnel wear masks, it can be done in person. However, for those individuals who feel that they don't want to take that risk, It should also be able to be done by mail. So I think both of those things can be operational. Mail voting, as well as those who feel if they keep their masks on, they keep the physical distance, and everyone in the polling station wears the masks, uses hand sanitizers, it should be safe person to person. But there are many people who just can't do that, who don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. They should be able to vote by mail. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And hopefully that will get worked out. Um, Being the uh, apolitical programming that we are, um, I don't get into those things. And I'm sure you'd prefer not to because of your most important work on on, uh, the medical and health uh, elements of this situation. Uh, We will just hope for the best on that. Um, You personally, you've been criticized. And it's my understanding that you've received some threats. And if you don't want to talk about it, it's fine. But could you, is that
0: correct? And could you characterize your experience? Yeah, no, it, it, it's been extraordinary, J.J., and I think it's a reflection of the intense divisiveness in our society where we have essentially put public health issues into a divisive, politically charged situation, uh, which is really unfortunate. And you're right, I, I have been and continue to talk about the importance of certain public health measures. There are those who interpret that as being against the economy or against having people employed. That's not the case. We should be using public health measures as a vehicle or pathway to opening the country and opening the economy and getting the jobs back. But some feel that public health officials like myself are harming them as opposed to trying to help them. And with that comes extremes, extremes that I've never experienced before to the tune of threats, physical threats, death threats, harassments of my family, my wife and my children, which is, you know, I've been through multiple outbreaks over the last 40 years. You know, everything from HIV to Ebola to Zika to pandemic flu to anthrax. And I've never seen this level of, divisiveness and, 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 and really un, unexplicable um, hostility, which really should not be the case, because we are trying to keep people healthy at the same time as we preserve the economy.
1: You know, that is exactly right. It shouldn't be the case. And a part of our effort, and in, in, my, in my case, my feeble effort to assist in the process of um, dialogue which hopefully will limit this kind of divisiveness is a program that i'm doing with chris core called colors a dialogue on race in america and one of the things we're doing is discussing um how COVID 19 is impacting uh minorities and chris uh, asked this question the tampa bay times which is where he lives says that blacks are two and a half times more likely to get COVID-19 in Pinellas County than whites. And his question is, why is that? Yeah,
0: JJ, there there are two elements that that need to be clarified for people. One, the likelihood that African-Americans will get infected versus whites or others. And importantly, when and if they do get infected, the likelihood of their getting a serious outcome more so than whites? And the answer is unfortunately, yes to both. Because African Americans, you'd never like to generalize, but it is true. As a demographic group, as a whole, obviously with many exceptions, but as a demographic group, their jobs that they have are generally more put them out there interacting, sometimes without having the easy capability of physically separating, as opposed to me and you talking through a computer, that as a demographic group, they are at higher risk of actually acquiring infection. That's point number one. Once they get infected because of the social determinants of health that are decades and decades and decades ingrained, What happens is that they have a higher prevalence and incidence of those very comorbidities, which make it more likely that if they get infected, they will have a severe outcome. And that is diabetes, hypertension, obesity, heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, the kinds of things that we have in society that are disproportionately and disparately more among the African-Americans. So I, I call it, JJ, almost a double whammy, a double disadvantage. A, the disadvantage of more likely getting infected because of the jobs and your position in society and the likelihood of getting a more severe outcome. I hope if there's any silver linings when we get past that, that that will again shine a very, very bright light on the fact that we have to do things about these disparities. We, we absolutely, because it happens with every disease. It happens with HIV and it's happening with COVID.
1: Yeah. You know, I read uh, recently that you did say that this was a double whammy against uh, minorities and you included Latins in that uh, community. Um, and I've also read that COVID-19 trials have been slow to recruit uh, Black and Latino participants. If that's true,
0: um, how would that impact the development of a vaccine? Well, you know, it would not necessarily impact the development of a vaccine, but it will be a gap in our understanding. When you develop a vaccine, you want to show that it is safe and effective in all elements of society. If we don't get African Americans and Latinx and Asian Americans and Native Americans, if we don't get them properly represented in the proportion of those who are in the trial, we will not know for sure, although you can assume it, but you want to prove it, that it is safe and effective in that group. So that when the vaccine is shown to be a safe and effective vaccine, you can look the minority community in the eye and say, hey, we've already proven in a large, really good trial, that this is safe and effective for you. So we've gotta reach out and engage at the community level, minority groups, to be totally transparent with them and explain to them why it's to their benefit to not only participate in the trial, but once the answer is gotten, to actually take the vaccine. Mm -hmm. It's even more so, J.J., for them to do that because they are at a higher risk of a serious consequence if they get infected.
1: Dr. Fauci, uh, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Without your input, I have no clue where this nation would be right
0: now. All right. Thank you, J.J. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me.
1: That's it for this episode. Coming up in our next election security, the trolls are back at it again. If you have any questions or comments about this program, send me an email at jgreen@wtop.com. at W-T-O-P.com. That's the letter J, the color green, that's one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. That's jgreen@wtop.com. at W-T-O-P.com. Also, if you will, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want to sign up for our newsletter, you can do it. It's called Inside the Skiff at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm JJ Green, and this is Target USA, the National Security Podcast.
0: So Miss Spencer and Heidi recap Laguna Beach on the Spidey Podcast. Lauren was the nice girl, but she wasn't that sweet. Even growing up in L.A., I'd always heard about the Laguna bubble and, like, how everyone hooks up with everyone. Like, that was, like, a known thing of Laguna Beach. I mean, there's never been a show like this before. You've seen Kristen and, like, her jacuzzi laying out. Like, who even lives like this? Get new episodes of the Spidey Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify.